0: Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was, and is, the Beatles.
1: Joan was quizzical, studied pataphysical science in the home. Late nights, all alone with a test tube. Oh, 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 oh. Maxwell Edison, majoring in medicine, calls her on the phone. Can I take you out to the pictures, Joan? But as she's getting ready to go, a knock comes on the door. Bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer made sure that she was dead. Back in school again, Maxwell plays the fool again. Teacher gets annoyed. Wishing to avoid an unpleasant scene, she tells Max to stay when the class has gone away. So he waits behind writing 50 times, I must not be so, Oh ho, ho. But when she turns her back on the boy, he creeps up from behind. Bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer came down upon her head. Bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer made sure that she was dead. You know, if you break my heart
0: As we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, We believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of The Breakup.
1: That you would realize that if I ran away from you, that you would want me to, that i got a big
2: surprise. Oh. Where were we? Right, <laughs> Happy Road. This is a fascinating period because it has been really underexplored. And as a result, this whole chapter has been a little murky and distorted. Unfortunately, there is not a great deal of information about this period. But a couple of new books, specifically Kenneth Womack's Solid State, The Story of Abbey Road, and The End of the Beatles, have helped illuminate the events of this final era. We return to our story at the beginning of July 1969 as the Beatles head back into the studio to record their last LP.
0: At this point, they had completed Let It Be. But the album was in limbo, as Glenn Johns was trying to edit it into an acceptable version, after his first take had been rejected by John and Paul. In the interim, the Beatles had been working on a new batch of songs, and I guess they were eager to bring them to fruition in the best way possible. So they made the decision to record in a more traditional manner, with George Martin at the helm, Jeff Amrick on deck, and the most advanced recording systems at their disposal. Paul spearheaded the project, but all the Beatles were on board and they were in the studio by July 1st and done by August 25th. This is the period we're going to discuss. Less traditional was the fact that there was a bed in the studio, a result of John and Yoko's car accident in Scotland, which delayed their arrival, leaving Paul, George and Ringo to record a number of tracks on their own. Intriguingly, once John returned, he chose to remain in the bed for several days while the others worked, which left him absent from some of the album's tracks. Heroin also played a part in these sessions, yet in the end all rose to the occasion to deliver the majestic album we all know. Abbey Road is often considered the Beatles' most polished album, but its content is no less personal or autobiographical. In fact, it is hugely informed by what's going on at the time, So in terms of understanding the breakup, it is instructive to look at both the songs and the album as a whole to explore what Lennon and McCartney were communicating at this
2: time. As always, the majority of our focus will remain on John and Paul, as we believe the breakup is largely a result of the breakdown of their partnership. This will be a two-part episode. In the first installment, we will discuss Come Together, Something, Maxwell, Oh Darling, Octopus's Garden, Here Comes the Sun, and Because. In the second, we discuss The Songs of the Medley, and I Want You, She's So Heavy. So let's get started.
0: We were reading an article, uh, or it's actually an essay, in a book called The Cambridge Companion, called uh, On Their Way Home, The Beatles in 1969 and 1970, that was written by Steve Hamelman. And it's interesting, he makes the point, too, that you can judge the work on its own merit, but it's very informed by what's going on at the time. So this is what he says. Many tracks from 69 teem with melancholy and nostalgia. Some drip with sarcasm, and others sound the depths of insecurity, loneliness, and desire. In all cases, the composer's thoughts and feelings are transmuted into original and timeless music by the other three Beatles. What was on their minds in 69? What caused such close companions to belittle and betray one another at almost every opportunity? Throughout 69, the Beatles were being drawn and quartered by internal and external forces too potent for each Beatle to resist. Yoko Ono, soon to be joined by Alan Klein, was pulling, had been pulling since mid-68, John out of one socket. Abetting Lennon's withdrawal from the Beatles were, in no particular order, his fury at the others for their rudeness to Yoko, his resentment towards Paul for everything from refusing to record Cold Turkey in the fall of 1969 to Paul's having become the dominant creative force and de facto leader of the band, his addiction to heroin, the cause of mental and emotional instability, his infatuation with experimental and political rock, and the paranoia that seemed to be his primary state of mind. Yanking Paul was a combination of the need to perform live, his relationship with Linda Eastman, mounting impatience with the Beatles' indifference, and the allure of getting away from it all.
2: So, what I like about that is, first of all, he's asking an important question, which is, "What the fuck happened to these right. best friends? To all of a sudden, they are stabbing each other. You know, right. how did how did that happen?" And then she does a pretty good job of lining up the various inputs, you know, that are impacting John.
0: They're numerous, you know, that the fact that he lists off four or five shows that John was really impacted that year by a number of things. You know, Paul's list is pretty small, actually, and not that significant. You know, with John, you know, he lists with John his fury at the other, the others for the rudeness to Yoko. Well, their alleged rudeness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know so, so there's somewhat rudeness but
2: or they're mutual rudeness yeah <laughs>
0: you know, yeah they, that's probably Yoko. that's probably the the most accurate
2: yeah his
0: resentment towards paul you know for everything uh, from refusing to record Cold turkey in the fall to him having become the dominant creative force and de facto leader of the band so <laughs> i think it's good that he references that there's myriad reasons
2: oh and there's i'm sure a million more
0: those three are really important and good examples, but there are also much deeper, more personal issues that are in there as well. But at least he flags that he's got a lot of resentment for Paul for a number of things. And this is impacting him. Um, he says uh, his addiction to heroin, which we're happy to see that, you know, that's obviously playing in the situation. He ties it to the cause of mental and emotional instability. Although we don't necessarily know if that's a result of the heroin or if that's just a pre-existing
2: meaning yeah meaning uh john might have some underlying um mental issues or you know mild personality disorder or whatever
0: emotional issues that may be contributing to why he's taking the heroin in the first place but if not if nothing else the heroin is is exacerbating any of these
2: right emotional
0: issues (laughs) and then his infatuation with experimental so fine he's infatuated with the experimental with yoko
2: yeah it's not exactly experimental rock though. It's it's spoken word stuff and, you know, sound collages and whatever. So it is um, experimental and technically it's music, I guess, but it's not, it's not experimental music the way that Paul experiments within, um, within the construct of popular music.
0: Right. And I think that's a, a bit of a, an issue that we both have that when it's talked about that John was, you know, that's not necessarily the problem here because, Paul is also, you know, he's the one bringing the tape loops to Abbey Road, and, you know, incorporating a lot of these things into their music. But the, and then his final point, and the paranoia that seems to be his primary state of mind. I think that that's a really important point that John was paranoid during this time, and I think he was taking things really personally, and that heightened every single issue. You know, like when absolutely, you know, that he was seeing things through a lens of being victimized or he you know people were against him even within the beatles which would have been very difficult it's very difficult to deal with somebody who's paranoid because like you've become on the defensive like no i didn't mean that you know yeah so so what is yanking paul so what's yanking paul so we have the the need to perform live which is true although that's not necessarily pulling him away from the beatles but right think
2: right it, he's trying to make it work
0: with them yeah almost that's pulling him towards them Because he needs them as a creative vehicle to do that, right? Without them. That's a great point. Yeah. I think this is an issue that isn't mentioned enough. You know, that Paul, I think one of the, the reasons that Paul is motivated to keep the group together, beyond the fact that he loves it, is he wants to perform. And it's kind of lost. But I think, you know, given that he proposes a performance with Let It Be or The Get Back. And then his idea in September is for them to perform live. So this is constantly on his mind, you know, as something that he wants to do.
2: Well, you know, one of the best and most important songs on his first solo album, in it, he says, every night I want to play out. is foremost in his mind. It's one of his favorite things to do. And I think that a lot of times people recognize that Paul loves music mm-hmm. and that he loves performing, um, but, but there's a sort of a cynical... Nasty way to look at it, like oh, he's just a fame whore and he just wants attention, and <laughs> right. you know. Right. But it's like, yes, he likes an audience because he likes to play for people. But he also just wants to play music all day long. All day
0: long. That, that, that's that's one of the defining features of them. You know, a lot of people who tell anecdotes say that he's always with his guitar. He's always playing.
2: You know, if you hate Paul, then you portray it like oh, he's just a clown. He needs to hear the clapping. <laughs> Paul is not the one taking out billboards and going on the five o'clock news every day and, and like posing naked and you know what I mean? like It's like, right. he's not Mr. Look at me, look at me in 1969. He wants to play music. Yes.
0: In fact, Paul said in a 1974 interview with Disc that the reason I got bored during the last part of the Beatles era was we didn't perform to audiences.
2: And no but- book that I've ever read has even suggested that Paul was bored or in any way unsatisfied yeah, with exactly. the Beatles in 1969.
0: Exactly. I mean, that's what I find astounding about that quote is that he kind of lets it slip. He doesn't complain generally, but he lets it slip. The reason I got bored during the last part of the Beatles era was we didn't perform. And so, you know, I think that that's really great support for the fact that he wasn't getting everything that he needed. He was that's dying to right. perform.
2: The idea that Paul was desperate to to keep the situation as it was is not accurate right
0: Paul is very grounded in his powers his identity as a musician and he wants to play and he wants to make it and that, like you said it's always kind of turned around as like he loves the band because he just loves being a Beatle no he loves music and John is right. defining himself outside of music. And I don't. there's no judgment one way or the other. But one of the, the, the reasons I think he really wants to keep the Beatles together is it's a, an amazing creative outlet. That's what he's always talking about. He hates to build, break up a beautiful thing because they make beautiful music together.
2: Another potential distraction, according to Hamelman, is Linda Eastman. I can see why he
0: says this, because Linda brings in her family, which is contributing to why Paul's stronger in this situation. However, they're not pulling him away from the Beatles. They are strengthening his position within the Beatles. But as opposed to the situation with Yoko, where Yoko's pulling John to something different away from the Beatles, potentially, with the work they're doing, Linda never does that. All she's yeah. trying to do is strengthen I, Paul within there,
2: right? I agree. I agree. I think it's possible, you know, maybe by saying his relationship with Linda Eastman is just sort of a shorthand for saying um, Paul's in-laws who are battling with Klein, Paul's, you know, um, his new family that is demanding to attend, time and attention as well.
0: Right. Okay. So that that's something that's not necessarily pulling the weight, but it's another, you know, it's another yeah. new factor in his life. Factor. F- yeah. Fine. Fine. And then he adds um, another thing yanking is the mounting impatience with the Beatles indifference, which I think that's never considered either, that he's probably just frustrated. Like, you know, you think this was fun for him? Everybody talks about how much he loved them. I mean, he, he talks about how terrible a time this is. And then finally he says, and the allure of getting away from it all. And that's an important theme. That, yes. I, again, on another podcast, I heard one of the, the people talking said, it's weird that it's not a John Lennon theme. The idea of escape and freedom in terms of their music and themes that, even when Paul talks, that is a, a, oh, no, a repeated and, and continuous theme that he talks about is freedom and escape. And it's very tied to Linda.
2: Yes, freedom is a Paul McCartney theme. For yeah, sure. yeah. Earlier in the series, in episode two, we talked about um, the recording of Get Back and all the songs from those sessions. And um, this same gentleman, Steve Hamelman, he said of the single Get Back, Don't Let Me Down, was the A and B side, he called it Paul's apostrophe to John, nudging him to return to the Beatles' nest. And John's apostrophe to Yoko and or some other addiction construed as first love and last.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that that's a bit vague. Uh, yeah, I think it's purposefully vague, but it's interesting because, well, first of all, Paul's apostrophe to John nudging him to return to the Beetle's nest, you know, it's, that's debatable, yeah, debatable, but you know what? The, the whole idea of get back is a retrenching. I think for all of them, they were all trying to do that. Not just Paul, but sure. Okay. He's, and I think it's not just to John, it's to all of them. You hear him saying that constantly. We need to get back to the music.
2: Yeah. Well, and, and by this point, um, a lot of people know the story of Linda's ex-husband in Arizona.
0: Yeah. The
2: lyrics of this song are, are often attributed to, um, Mel C.
0: Right. Right. Whose actual name is Joseph Mel C who lives in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah. And the thing that is astounding is that people never actually take into consideration that Paul has met the woman that he stays with for the rest of his life. And it's always treated as if like, she's not even a consideration, but but I know, know. but, but yet he's writing a song about a guy who lives in Tucson, Arizona, who happens to be called Jojo and Linda's ex is named (laughs) Joseph. (laughs) Yes.
2: Who Paul is telling to back the fuck off right now. Right. And yeah, that's
0: probably not an issue. It's just like his own biography. Yeah. Yeah, his own life. Is ignored, you know, um, because he's never been looked into. And then the second part of it, John's apostrophe to Yoko and or some other addiction construed as first love and last. I mean, that's intriguing, right?
2: That's definitely intriguing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think at the very least he's suggesting that he's speaking to Yoko or perhaps somebody else.
0: Yes. I think he's deliberately vague because he's not going to spell out whatever he's talking about, but he's making the point that it's Yoko and or someone else. Okay. So that is Mr. Hamelman's take on it. And we think that that's interesting. I think that there's a lot of insight and we appreciate the fact that he sees the fact that these guys are being pulled in a number of different directions. And that's his point is that that's feeding into the biographical nature of this album.
2: Okay, can we talk about the cot? Oh, yes, let's
0: definitely talk about it. Well, it's not even a cot, it's a bed. Of course. So just for anybody who doesn't know, um, John and Yoko and um, Julian and Kyoko were in an accident when John was driving them in Scotland. You know, they had some injuries
2: and oh my god why was john behind the wheel in the first place john should never have been driving
0: yeah they get in an accident and it's interesting because they have plans to start the abbey road sessions and they find out that john gets into the accident and apparently they just decide to go ahead and just start recording you know they know that john's okay he's injured but he's okay so it's not like they're heartless but they were just like okay well we're gonna start with adam so they actually are very productive, the Three dolls, without John yeah. there. So they cover uh, George's songs, Paul's medley songs, and Ringo's song while John isn't there. They're incredibly productive. And I think that, you know, it was probably fairly low stress. In fact, I think there's accounts yeah. that it was, it was very nice with just the three of them there. I think Linda was in the studio. She took all those photos, and it
2: looks good. Yeah, there's some really sweet photos of, like, George and Paul. It's
0: interesting that it so becomes the other three against Paul. I mean, I think this is one of the enduring question marks around what happened. Because Abbey Road is so much more of a collaboration between George, Paul, and Ringo. And by all accounts, they get along incredibly well. So how they ended up on opposite sides you know, six months later is, uh, you know, something that we'll have to dig into.
2: Right. So let's talk about that for a second. If the three Beatles are getting along perfectly fine and things go awry when John and Yoko show up, what does that suggest?
0: Oh, well, it becomes pretty obvious that <laughs> the the element that is creating huge discord is one of those two or both of them, right? You know, even in Howard Soon's book, Fab, he says, this is a quote, without Lennon, the early Abbey Road sessions were happy and harmonious, with Paul sliding joyfully down the banister from George Martin's control room like a carefree young beetle. There was one spat with Harrison, but it blew over. Then John and Yoko appeared, dressed in matching black, a tow truck following them with smashed up remains of their touring car, a memento of their brush with death.
2: Okay, I don't know why they felt the need to. (laughs) <laughs> drag that the road but okay <laughs> just show everybody this massive car <laughs>
0: that's very funny it's so them though it's not like they're just going to quietly come back you know
2: <laughs> right right. it's like they're dragging it through saint john's woods like, so every, everybody
0: every, will talk ev- exactly everybody must see what happened to them right <laughs> the car. they don't they don't do anything privately those two everything is art but and then it goes it's on good. Men from Herods also came with a bed, which they erected in the studio so that the injured Yoko could lie there watching the boys work. I thought I'd seen it all, Jeff Emmerich noted in his memoirs of this supremely strange moment in the Beatles' history. But this took the cake. John asked for a microphone to be suspended over the bed so Yoko could make comments on what she heard. And she didn't hold back. And so what's going on here? What, what can we conclude from this?
2: Well, it's it's it suggests that the problem was not between Paul and George, mm-hmm. exactly. Like the like the big problem, the major, or not between yeah
0: yeah or Paul and Ringo. For all the the right. books right. talk about, you know him being too bossy. Let's actually take that out of the you know. Let's look at when he. It's just the three of them. There is not that issue, and in fact these guys get together in early January 70 to work together again and again, there's no issue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just kind of like we have case studies that we can look to here and just say, Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, all of that assumption maybe isn't true. So maybe somebody is stirring the pot. Right. And it isn't necessarily just them being the problem. It could be the tension that arises of those two coming in specifically between George and John and Yoko and Paul and John and Yoko. Like, it's something Mm -hmm. about their presence.
2: Which is not, you know, not picking apart anything specific that any person did, but definitely implies that, like, that's not a good setup. It's not a good atmosphere. Having Yoko Ono in her custom-made bed while you're trying to function as a band wasn't really conducive to like great work environment.
0: Well, and the thing is, is that it's very difficult to create when somebody is not part of the creative process and is just observing and criticizing. I mean, that's, you know, you become so self-conscious and, you know, Paul has said this, you, you know, and somebody like George who really is much more introverted would feel this as well. And it's just like, maybe John felt like she was an extension of him, but it's very unfair to and inconsiderate to his band members. And Paul says this, that this was he actually makes the point that he doesn't work well under these conditions. And it's unfortunate, you know?
2: Yeah. Well John said a year later that um he has Yoko and Phil Spector in the studio and they love him and support him, unlike Paul and George, who would be you
0: know, yeah. And I'm
2: super critical of him.
0: I think that's a, a really, really good point to make because, you know, we can criticize John and say, well, he was being inconsiderate <laughs> as I just did. But the the flip side of that is that John maybe is not doing this to be inconsiderate. He's doing this because he needs it. Like to me, that's his, right. his comment in 70 shows that he feels like he needs an advocate and he needs support. Yes.
2: That's what I'm saying is that Yoko is there for mental support to tell him you're terrific. You're great. Everything you're doing is good job. You know, yeah.
0: Terrific. I, yeah, exactly. And I agree with John's opinion, you know, and I think that's a big deal is for to have, right.
2: yes. And, and
0: that's why, you know, they say that John and Yoko are strong together because he has backup constantly. Whereas he did not potentially feel strong enough to argue his point on his own. I mean, that's right. I, I, but I, I think this is critically important to think of because Nobody recognizes how vulnerable and insecure John was, you know, and that was driving his actions.
2: There's a myth about John Lennon being the super strong leader, you know, throwing his weight around, dominating, like 69, greatest year ever. Remember? Yeah. It's his greatest year ever. He's just like doing whatever he wants, telling everybody what to do. And they're just mesmerized by how cool he is. They're just, you know, whatever. But like, in reality... He's so insecure, he needs to bring his girlfriend, or well, his wife now, he needs to bring his wife to work to tell him, you're doing great, I agree with John. Yeah, Whatever John says is terrific. And, like, it, it, and literally, he spelled that out a year later.
1: And now I had Yoko there and Phil there, uh, alternatively and together, who sort of love me, okay, so I can perform better.
0: We need to put that together. When he's saying in 70, now I have people who love me unlike before but that's he's telling mm-hmm. us how he was feeling in 69 was unloved and unsupported you know and so this wasn't a matter of him just being so cool and coming in and being like i'm beyond this this is hi- him coming in saying i felt like i needed somebody to hold my hand to be there Please. i keep reading this quote you know things were going well between the threadles and their music making and they were afraid mm-hmm everybody was afraid of when John and Yoko were coming back because they were very powerful. And I always am like, what does that mean? Very powerful. I don't know. Like, I think that they give them this label of being very powerful.
2: And yet powerful is like the most highly complimentary way to spin. Scary.
0: Yes. The idea that they're scary is a totally different idea that they're But like that
2: I can believe because you know, John is volatile, he's up and down, yeah, and they're both using heroin, so I can believe and they're and they're they're being a little reckless. They took Julian to Scotland without permission and they I mean
0: Yeah, they won't talk to Cynthia when she tries to confront John. I mean they're just being difficult.
2: All their all John's relatives in Scotland were like, What the f- Fuck! Are you doing? <laughs> uh, they're making everybody nervous. Yes, I can believe that. But nervous, like-
0: anxious, concerned. But this this suggests that they are the ones controlling the situation when they say they're powerful, which is not what's going on. You know, they're coming back, and there's that's, like that's right. There's a highly functional team. Everybody's getting along well. Everybody, you know, they're all very pleased with the way it's progressing. And John and Yoko come in, and they've got their bed. And the weirdest thing is that John gets back and he's not, he's got some, you know, cuts and bruises, but I don't think he needed to be in the bed. But he shows up and then just decides he's going to retire to the bed and watch them for a week.
2: Which I'm sorry, but that is the single weirdest thing that I've learned about this entire year. It It really is.
0: I mean, how passive aggressive is And weird is that let's, let's just talk about what he's doing. This is his band and he's at work and he's decided he's just going to lie down and watch the other three work.
2: That to me absolutely sounds like John is just sitting there waiting for Paul to ask him to come sing with him. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to sit here and fucking stare at you for two full days, McCartney. And Paul's like, if you think that I'm going to ask you to come sing with me, you've lost your fucking mind. (laughs) It's so true. They're both just like, fuck you. No, you know what? Fuck you and your goofball wife with her headband. (laughs) Tiara. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right. Her band aid tiara. Get the <laughs> fuck out of here.
0: I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hilarious that she wears a, a tiara to cover her her stitches. But yes, that's exactly what it is. It's like a weird standoff.
2: This is from Solid State: The Story of Abbey Road and the End of the Beatles by Kenneth Womack. Womack writes: Work resumed on Maxwell Silverhammer during the July 9th session with Martin in the control booth and Lennon and Ono looking on from the newly installed bed. As the bandmates worked their way through 16 takes, Lennon didn't budge as McCarty picked up where they had left off in January.
0: And then later, he writes, but a new Cold War was on as Lennon lay dormant, still suffering from his injuries earlier that month, and having grown impatient with Maxwell's silver hammer. So these are both um, about Lennon being in bed, which, again, is so astounding, because, you know, for all of the stories of these sessions, it's always been about Yoko being in bed with the microphone, right? And this is such an astounding piece of information, because it suggests, you know, some pretty interesting dynamics that are going on. And I mean, Womack ties John's actions to Maxwell, You know, of course, it's always the scapegoat for everything that happens in this period. But (laughs) he he ties it to that particular song. But let's be clear, because first of all, this is his interpretation. We don't really know. But also, he stays there while they move on to other songs. Like, he's sitting there watching his band do all of these songs. And for some reason, it's like he's on strike or something, or he doesn't, you know, there's something very political or power play going on in that he is not participating. You know, he's present, but he's not participating. And to blame it on, Maxwell is absolute laziness, I think.
2: I mean, his dislike of Maxwell, you know, could potentially explain why he didn't participate on that one song, but that's two days. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, because we're looking at a period, he comes in on the ninth. And according to Womack, he does step up to participate in the vocals for You Never Give Me Your Money, but then retires back to bed and then really doesn't show up fully until the 21st. So that's a lot
2: of time. (laughs) That's a really long time.
0: And again, like, it's just shocking to me that this... Hasn't been the story. The story is all about Yoko being with her, you know, lying there with a microphone. But in fact, it was both of them, which is a whole lot weirder because this is his band. I mean, yeah, you know, so there's there's definitely something going on there. It's a bit of a cold war. And, you know, we don't really know what's going on. Maybe, like you said, it had to do with him coming in and not liking the song. I suspect it's more than that. I suspect that there was something that he was already upset about.
2: Yes. It's not because Maxwell sucks.
3: Get out of here.
2: Come on. Exactly. It's like some weirdness is going on. And like you said, it's like if the whole band is recording and John's just sitting there for, you know, what is it like two weeks? You know, the thing is, is that if. His nose was out of joint mm -hmm. because they had started without him and then he comes back and he's like, oh, I. Don't have enough power to hold up production, and then he comes and he sits there, and it's like, even when he's staging a protest in the actual studio, yeah, they still are like, all right, well,
0: yeah, we're just whatever. Gonna, we're just gonna keep going here. Yep, they're just like, not, nah, nah, we're not, we're not giving into this bullshit right now. We're just gonna keep working, and you can just lie there if you want, okay.
2: And then they That's do great crazy. work. That's kind of an important layer to the whole power play of nineteen sixty nine.
0: I think it's very important. And it's really interesting that it hasn't been discussed and it's been blamed on Yoko's presence there being. I'm sure that was like not to downplay how uncomfortable that would have been. However, John lying there potentially in judgment would have been even more uncomfortable. And you know what? The interesting thing to me is that it suggests that like that, to me, that's not a boredom thing or anything like that, like a disinterested. That's an extreme.
2: It's like games. They're playing games. Yeah, absolutely. Like he could have just John and Yoko could have been laying in bed at home. Yeah,
0: they could have been like, screw that. We're going home. We, we don't care anyways. But no, they don't do that. They lie there in the studio. And I mean, and just to address the issue of John's. Injuries, like it's one thing if he had had a concussion or something like that. But from the the reports, he had some stitches on his head, which, you know, is terrible. It's terrible they got in this accident, but that doesn't really, yeah, you know,
2: he didn't break his wrist. His he's you know his arm isn't in a cast. He can play the guitar, (laughs) right, and he and he can sing, yeah, which are his jobs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so there's more going on here. You know, I mean, this is really incredible that he doesn't really fully participate with the band until the 21st of July. And they started in the studio on the 1st of July. You know, John's watching them do Paul songs and then a couple of great George songs and then Ringo song and come together. Womack flags uh, is his first composition since the ballad of John and Yoko and give peace a chance. Like he's not writing a ton. And I just wonder how stressful a situation that is for John, you know, that he's fairly dry in this period. Now, they had other songs they could work on of John's. They had I Want You, She's So Heavy or his, his medley songs. But, you know, I'm sure he wanted to bring another, you know, A-plus song to the album and he didn't have it. Right. You know, so I, I just wonder how stressful this situation was for John, too.
2: Well, and, and not to jump ahead, but, like, if Come Together is about, you know, uh, bringing the band together, maybe that's what he's thinking, too. He's like, I need to get control of this situation.
0: I do think so. Like, you know, even Womack suggests this, that this was his way of breaking the detente. I think that's on his mind. Like, how do I say face? You know, maybe the situation spiraled where he didn't came back. He wasn't happy about the fact that they have continued done all this work about yeah. him. He comes in, they're doing Maxwell. He doesn't like that. He, you know, lays down, and then he finds himself in a situation that he can't.
2: That's you know, what I'm saying with yeah. the, the standoff with Lennon and McCartney. Paul's not going to go ask. Yeah, and John's not going to approach him. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they they're way too proud both of them. They're yep. way too hurt probably yep. both of them. John's hurt that they're yep. moving on without him, Paul's hurt that John has come back and is not participating. I mean, yeah. you know, to, th- to to suggest that wouldn't have hurt the guys that John's there and, you know, they probably assume everybody's insecure. They probably assume he doesn't like our songs enough or he's not interested right. or something, you know?
2: And, and and vice versa. John probably feels like a spare dick.
0: Oh yeah, definitely John's going to at some point feel awful about the situation that they cuz they're right. doing great work. They're doing brilliant mm-hmm. work the three of them. Yeah, he's got to be thinking, okay. How do how do I break this stalemate? How do I do it without losing face without apologizing? Right. But in a way and you know, the best way is to to come with a song that they all love. To do it musically. Right the thing is, is that it's not like John doesn't want to participate because after about a week or 10 days, he shows up like, ta-da! I'm back and I've got a song. It's like, I guess he's decided that he's never going to be asked. So, you know, he finds a way to come back and pull a rabbit out of his hat and be like,
2: well, I meant to do that and now I've got a song. Can we just talk about Come Together? John is writing a song about basically ejaculating. Right. and how many times have you read that that it's about all four Beatles like because it's got four verses so they're right, like well right. each, each verse is one Beatle although we can't seem to find Ringo in this song
0: <laughs> and, and so some people have posited that it's Paul John Paul John or John Paul John Paul
2: yeah and everybody, everybody is totally cool right. with like John writing a song about all the Beatles ejaculating on him It's like, that's perfectly fine. And they're like, well, yes, they're all coming on his face, but like not in a gay way. You know, it's just four guys coming on your face is just a party. Like that's, he's just a cool guy, you know? Well,
0: well, that is a John Lennon party. I mean, we know the the Beat the Meatles or the Meet the Beatles (laughs) story about them all jerking off together. So maybe this is a celebration of that. Like nobody puts together all the pieces of it. It's vaguely sexual... And maybe it's about the Beatles, but it's it's not like, okay, so what does this say?
2: It's literally about Jizz. That's what the song is about. Come together right now over me. Like I want everybody to come over here and jerk off right now. It's it's not subtle either. He's like singing in the in this song. It's like come. God, he's like doing that between the, like, it's ridiculous. Right. Right. God, it's probably up higher in the mix now, or maybe they buried it. I'm not sure. I haven't heard on the remix, but like, it's so over the top. Well, <clears throat> you can see the alternate read. It's just them
0: coming together, you know, as a union, which is I assume what most people take it as it's easy just to sort of dismiss that and be like, Oh, it's just John being John being a little crazy, but he doesn't really mean that because you know, John likes
2: peace. Yeah. He likes peace and Yoko's vagina.
0: Yep. Those are the only two things that, he likes. And Those like- are the only two things he thinks about. Right. So therefore this song is generally about people coming together peacefully and it's, mi- it's missing Yoko, unfortunately.
2: Just to be clear, mm-hmm. about um, when we're talking about the the circle jerk thing, just in case any of our viewers are not aware, um, Paul McCartney did not break this story in two thousand eighteen <laughs> or nineteen right. or whatever. John Lennon b- broke this hard hitting story, like in the in the sixties. Like it it was written into a play in nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, by John's buddy Victor Spinetti. Right.
0: No, this oh, is definitely
2: a John story. That they told that it was fun to them. Well, that's the thing. It's like, it's not like a dark secret.
0: Yeah. Well, this is another in his long list of sexual songs this year that pretty well disappear after this year.
2: If you take it at face value, that sounds like what it is. We know this is a person that everybody kind of agrees is in this song, right? The song is about his bandmates or at least one of his bandmates.
0: So this could be this could be John coming in and being a little bit more like, "Hey, remember that, guys?" You know, being a little playful with the group, or it could be it could be John being provocative.
2: Yeah, and and we're certainly not the first people to suggest that. I mean, like a lot of people make that joke, and then they just kind of like they're like, "Oh yeah, ha ha ha," and then they kind of change the subject. It's like, well, we we it's okay to make it's okay to joke about that. We just don't want to really think about it. Like, well, right, why? But- the question is like, why is he singing it? And like, what's the point of it? You know, if he's like, hey, hey, guys, remember that was funny when we all jerked off. OK, well, he's just being a big weirdo. And it doesn't mean anything. It just means like, hey, this is our last album. Remember the good times. <laughs> right. but like, you know, if it's about. If it's about Paul, then it's a little more aggressive. Right. Yeah. Then it's more just then it's more about like putting them on blast a little bit, or it's a little less funny,
0: <laughs> right? No, yeah, yeah, it is more provocative.
2: <laughs> well, remember when we were talking about last episode and maybe in the first episode even too? Um, we're talking about how there's a certain level of John that is just being provocative. Yeah, like he's just pushing and daring, and he's he's like pushing the what they can get away with. Mm, Right. People read into our songs? Okay, great. How about this one? Try this one on for size. And so Paul... Oh, you want to write a fucking mopey goodbye song? How about this? How about I write a song about us fucking coming together?
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is my tribute to us.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: I can't imagine it's just a George John Paul song.
2: Well, George John Paul is kind of weird. Um, right. If it's a four, if it's a four-man circle jerk, then it's like yeah, that makes that um, makes sense. Yeah, but if it's if it's directed at Paul and it's it's a John Paul, John Paul, then it's way more loaded. No pun intended. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, hard that
0: be, time. it's hard not to be. It's hard not to. It's difficult to say anything that isn't <laughs> loaded around this. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> who knows what John is actually communicating. And I don't want to seem like, a, you know, that to say that I know what John Lennon is thinking with these lyrics because we don't, but I just find a few of them quite intriguing and just want to sort of flag them. I find the, I know you, you know, me lyric pretty interesting because to me, that's, that's, You know, It's almost talking to somebody that he knows deeply. I know you, Mm -hmm. you know me, you know, we both know what's going on here, which to me does speak to either Paul or the group, you know, like later in the seventies, John talks about how by this point he knew Paul on so many different levels. And so, you know, Mm. to me that could lend itself to that. The other line that I find interesting in the, you know, in the verse that everyone attributes to Paul, there's the one and one and one is three. And just, you know, who knows what the meaning of that is, but given their situation with Klein, I just wonder if that is a hint to him that, you know, you're outvoted. But again, I think there is a friendliness to this that, you know, he's playfully talking about him, but also that, you know, I think ultimately, no matter what the, the, the narrative is, I think... John does want to bring them together. He's fighting so hard for Klein to manage all of them and to be in charge. You know, it's not like they're like, cool, Paul, you go off on your own. So I think that there is something to me. There's something about that line that speaks to their situation. Of course, there's the got to be good looking, which, you know, John constantly refers to Paul's looks, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Everybody thinks that line is about Paul.
0: Right. Right. I mean, Paul is good looking and, and John flags this in, you know, how do you sleep, you know? But so that, that's potentially, you know, signal that's to Paul, but then the the other part that he's so hard to see
2: sounds like Paul also.
0: Yeah. Like, is that him conveying that, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a dig or else it's a bit of a statement. Like he's, Paul's fucking hard to read at that point for John, you know, I can't see you anymore. You know, I I can't read, I can't read your mind anymore, especially given John's belief in telepathy. But this idea of he's so hard to see, to understand is, it, it does seem a little pointed to me. Like it does seem a little accusatory to me.
2: Paul's not the most transparent person in the world. You know, he's a little opaque.
0: Yeah. You know, he's admitted that. He knows. <laughs> he knows. He knows. You know, he knows that he's not being transparent. He's being protective. And John is kind of kind of calling him out here for that.
2: John who always wore his heart on his sleeve, according yeah. to several people including Paul. If we if we're just talking about lyrics just yep. for fun, um one of the one that one that jumps out to me is Ono's oh sideboard. I know it's just a play on words with side sideboards and sideburns yeah 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 whatever. but i don't know why Ono oh, sideboard like i don't know why those are connected and it to me it always sounds like like oh no, is on the side oh
0: totally yeah
2: which is a very bizarre sentiment because well, we are we're we're always led to believe that she is the center of the universe she's oh, definitely not you know side piece right right oh no
0: <laughs> main board yes
2: yeah, main board, not sideboard.
0: Yeah. No, and, and you just, know what? Every time I hear that, the word side does flag that issue for me too. It's like she's his side, to me, kind of like the sidekick. Like she's always with him. Mm, but, yeah. But it doesn't position her as the center of the universe.
2: Right. He got Ono sideboard. How about he got Juju eyeballs? <laughs> he won Holy Roller.
0: I, I think that the Holy Roller is. Still John.
2: Well, that's funny. It's that people are like, well, clearly that's George because he has long hair. It's like, <laughs> okay. Well, John has long hair too. Well, and the Holy roller. It's like, well, John did declare he was Jesus. And like, he literally just wrote a single saying he was going to be crucified. So he could be the Holy roller too. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah. if it was a clearly Ringo fourth, then it would make sense, but it just doesn't make sense for there just to be three. Also, this standoff is really between Paul and John at this point.
2: Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Come together over me, that's a double entendre where you're just like, um, come come gather together in my name. Right. Yeah, you know, so so he's doing a little bit of a Jesus thing there, right?
0: right come together
2: over me he's like a cult leader that's how I
0: always took it as you know as a Jesus type character
2: you know because the the original thing was for Timothy Leary and then he took it and did something else with it yeah so maybe that was the original idea
0: but I guess I guess the point is is that most of the time John writes about himself about situations around him
2: Yes, and again, this is the last album that he's doing with his band. I don't, again, I don't know why nobody thinks he's emotionally invested. That's the part that I, I never get. Like, why do people? Why would he not be writing songs about his relationship with Paul and and about the band breaking up and stuff? I don't, I don't know why everybody thinks he's like free and easy, just not thinking about it.
0: Right. I mean, that's one of the huge fallacies of this time, that John didn't care. I think he cared so tremendously. You know, this is just a situation that he doesn't know how to make better. And certainly, you know, the the fight with Klein, Northern Songs, all of this stuff is is John's world. And to think that his feelings and his thoughts are not seeping through into his songs is insane. Another potential read... Of the song, just given the context that we discussed before, you know, how, how John is sort of in this situation where he's got to save face and find some way to reunite himself with a group mm-hmm. that the the whole uh, concept of coming together may have been his attempt to break the standoff. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if it's the four of them, like if Mm -hmm. he's been sitting there and they've got sort of this issue between all of them and there's this tension and he he is sort of playfully doing a profile of each of them in this song (laughs) and then come together. Right. That would make sense. And, And to me, that suggests that, again, he's not done. He's trying to find a way. Yeah, to, you know, a, a salve or a way to solve the situation and to bring them back together. But that is if it's the four of them. Now, if it's just, if the song is just about the two of them,
2: mm, okay.
0: that also actually makes sense to me too, because I think fundamentally the power plays between the two of them. Right. Right. And so if he's coming in with this song it's coded, but the two of them I'm sure can Paul can work out something that's about him. Sure. So if he's bringing in something that's really like you me, you me or you know John Paul, John Paul and it's all about come together, I think this could be John's nod at okay, you know what let's get over this, let's get on. you know there's it's sort of his nod to his desire to bring them back together,
2: right. You know? It's kind of like a um like a precursor to instant karma. Exactly.
0: It's a this a, instant karma to me is a little bit more bullying. Whereas
2: yeah, it definitely more impatient. Yes as well. Yes.
0: That was like get your ass back here, you know, recognize your brothers. Yeah. Where whereas
2: stop fucking around now. Now <laughs> you're stressing me out now.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Whereas this is an earlier iteration of, okay, you know what? you know me, I know you, you know me, you know what? Let's get back together. You know, fundamentally we can fight, but we're still a family and uh, we're still Lennon McCartney.
2: So I think of come together as a Lennon McCartney composition. Personally, I do. I think of this as like one of the, the last great um, collaborations. And it's so annoying to me when people are like, oh, this John song, it's, oh. so, ima- it's so cool. It's so badass and this proves that John was just a genius and a, such a cool guy that he came up with come together. All y'all fucking know, every single one of you Beatle people, you fucking know that John brought in a basic ass Chuck Berry ripoff and that Paul McCartney wrote that fucking bass line. And that bass line and the drums, which John, pretty sure he didn't write those drum that drum part either. That is the fucking song. And that is why that song is cool so don't don't even pretend you go play it on an acoustic guitar and tell me how great it is have you ever heard a cover of come together yeah they suck all of them yeah yeah no it's- and more to the point you if you think come together in and of itself is just because of the lyrics are, is an amazing song go listen to the fucking elephants memory band play that shit <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's true. And you know what? But this this is a much larger issue. I do think of that as Lennon McCartney. And I think that that's why, you know, Paul wasn't the one that pulled apart the songs and attributed mine, yours. That was what John did. And I think that it was very unfair because Paul so helped John's songs over and again. So many of John's songs are innovative and, but they're dirge-like. Like, you know, they are They're great, but they need something else. And I think this is the perfect example of, you know, it's Paul's bass line that adds the complexity that makes it sexy. The depth of the musicality that Paul often, so often brings to John's songs. Yes. Really tips them from being good to being genius songs, you know?
2: Yes. And tomorrow never knows. Yeah. is as bomb as it is because it's a drum and bass song. Absolutely, I mean, with that, fucking that... backwards guitars and tape loops and shit. Uh, God bless John Lennon. He he's not responsible for any of that. <laughs> <laughs> he literally picked up a book and went turn off your mind and and on like one note. And Paul was like, "That's dope. Let's do something really cool with that." And then like everybody pitched in. Well, I, and I kind
0: I kind of love the fact that Paul always sees. The kernel of the genius idea in his stuff, but then he builds on it. You know what I mean? And it's the build that makes it amazing.
2: That's right. But I mean, like, how much credit does John get for "It Can't Get No Worse"? You know, it's like he adds half the song, one one line to a song, and it's a and it's a it's a joint collaboration. You know exactly, what
0: I mean? Exactly, exactly. Whereas
2: but we always talk about come together and tomorrow never knows as John songs.
0: You know, I really love this song, and I think that, um, you know, kudos to George for writing a brilliant song, but also I love the bass on it because it makes it interesting. It's kind of wandering, and I love the fact that he won and Ringo's drums are perfect on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also love the combo of their voices. For me, George and Paul's voices together are beautiful. They're really beautiful, and when he did support George, he did do a spectacular job showing up for his songs like he does for every single song on Abbey Road.
2: Well, even George said it. You know, I well, like we had to do 8,000 of Paul's songs first, but then by the time we got around to doing my shit, Paul always gave a lot. Yeah,
0: and he said he was a great person to have on your side.
2: Yeah. And for the record, I mean it's it's worth pointing out that despite the trendy narrative about how Paul was an unsupportive monster and didn't um, right. recognize George's genius. Paul is actually the one who is present and participating on this song and who has always championed this song, by the way.
0: If you look at the history of this song, John did help. You know, there's some some audio uh, uh, from the Get Back sessions where John does give a couple of suggestions to some lyrics or blocking some lyrics to George. And then they do, as a group, lay down the original track, but then they do a lot of work in the studio while John is there, but he doesn't participate. Right. So when the time came, Paul really stepped up and worked on yeah. it. And so this narrative right now, in light of you know the meeting that's been in the, me- in the news recently, uh, the one that John taped in September is, you know, making Paul out to be the bad guy, but just we've got the receipts from these sessions and and Paul showed yep. up.
2: I think we can't ignore all the anger and hurt that paul is feeling and repressing at this time right and the fact that like seriously that like he's writing a song about bludgeoning people for (laughs)
0: that i think it is kind of hilarious that it's this little jaunty song that you know about this guy that keeps murdering people Mm -hmm. and it's both his anxiety and his anger coming out in that song yeah yeah um in 1994 mccartney said the song merely epitomizes the downfall of life being an analogy for when something goes wrong out of the blue, as it so often does, as I was beginning to find out at that time in my life. I wanted something symbolic of that. So to me, a fictitious character named Maxwell with a silver hammer. I don't know why it was silver. It sounded better than Maxwell's hammer. It was needed for scanning. Um, We still use that expression now when something unexpected happens. And he does talk about it that way. It's probably reflective of some of how you know, Paul is saying specifically he was learning this at this time, where things had gone perhaps so well, you know, he'd kind of lived a charmed life from, you know, nineteen to twenty-five. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, he's got Yoko, he's got the breakup of the band, he's got Klein, he's got the breakup with Jane. You know, it's just like all of these things are hitting him. And he can't fix them. So I just think it, it is interesting to note that Paul's got anxiety, that he's he's that things aren't going the way he wanted them to. And then I think the rest of the song is kind of him having fun with it <laughs> and maybe a way of channeling his anger and his desire to murder all of these people in his life, at least subconsciously, you know, fictitiously. Right.
2: The, the hammer isn't falling on his foot. The hammer isn't, you know, like breaking a window. Like, the hammer is bludgeoning people to death. Like, it doesn't have to do that. (laughs) Right. When you mention anxiety, it, it makes me think of, like, it sounds like Paul is really perseverating, you know, on this song for some reason. Yes. And it's driving them all insane.
0: Right. And so why is he doing that?
2: Right. Because when you read the guys, you're like, guys, calm the fuck down. Didn't you do like 145 takes of George's song?
0: Right. And haven't you been working on She's So Heavy for like four months straight? And, you know, it's true. I mean, there's a lot of songs that they worked on a lot more than this one. And yet this one, you're right. There's something underneath it that bothers them. Yeah. But is there some kind of message that he's trying to convey it's
2: Almost like Perverse. Paul's like do, doing it to get revenge on them or something, <laughs> and it you know, and then like there is revenge in the song, literally. Like, <laughs> right.
0: it's interesting to me that nobody tries to get underneath this song.
2: Well, Lennon shut it down, he was like, Granny music, and then everyone was like, Oh, it's granny music, never mind, <laughs> right? We, remi- we, rem- we were gonna take a crack at it, but uh, right,
0: nope. since it's granny music, it doesn't matter. It's unfortunate because John said that doesn't take something that is a weird outlier for Paul. You know, like he had other great songs at the time, and yet he hangs on to this one. He wants it in. There's something emotional to him about this song. And the way he explains it is, you know, basically explains his feeling of lack of control and anxiety and, and anger. This song is so maligned right now. I mean, everybody is jumping on this bandwagon that this is the song. Oh God. Like it's ridiculous the amount of hate that this song gets. And you know what? It is primarily because John tore it apart. Like he gave us the talking points yeah. mm-hmm. to how to evaluate somebody he's very competitive with, how to evaluate his music. Maybe this is not John's cup of tea, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad song. And it's just so ungenerous that he went out and... You know, and spoke negatively about his partner's songs like this. I mean, reviewers have trashed this song so profusely to the extent that they have said that it was like solely responsible for the breakup of the Beatles, (laughs) that it was almost starting to have a negative halo in my mind, you know, until I listened to it again. And then I was like, no, I like this song. Fuck that. I mean, it's not my favorite Paul song, but I do enjoy it. Yeah. Anyways, it just reflects how much negative spin can impact your perception. And it's bullshit. Well, and
2: he stands by it, too. You know, sometimes, you you know, Paul, if if he suffers enough trash talk about one of his songs, he'll go, well, all right, I guess it wasn't that great. But this one, he's like, "Uh uh-uh, no, ma'am. In many years from now, he's like, that's a great song. Let me tell you all about it. (laughs) Fuck that. I don't give a shit. I mean, what his, they think. I mean, he, I
0: like his point that, like, so we spent three days on it. What, big deal. I happen to like this song. This is a meaningful song to Paul. It's so meaningful that he put it in his book of poetry, Blackbird Singing. The excerpt that we played at the beginning is actually Paul reading it at the 92nd Street Y um, discussion of his his book of poetry. And he did a reading of, you know, a number of his poems, and this was among them. And so there is just something about the, these words that are meaningful to him.
2: Like, I get that the melody isn't his greatest melody of all time. That one's not his best because it doesn't really go anywhere interesting. Yeah, that's true. Um, So it just kind of repeats itself. You're like, OK, wait, are you going to are you going to break and do something? OK, no, we're just going back to this. All right. Yeah, that's true but like the actual song is great like i love the story i'm in, i'm in, i'm into the story i, I want to hear it you know play out i just wish that they had i wish that the other beatles had put their creative juice into it i Me feel too. like if john had put any juice into this song at all they could have made it something super cool so i get what he's doing with like you know there's a dissonance with the melody and the lyrics like sometimes that works. You know, it's like the Smiths do that a lot. Right. But like, he didn't really, and I think we, we talked about this one, he didn't really lean in all the way. Like how easy was it to make Maxwell cool? All all I did was drop in that cool bass line right. of Paul's, put the lyrics on and it completely transforms the song. You can see how much potential it has.
0: You know, it's like he wasn't truly willing to embrace the darkness of the song. He he hedges. And and like you said there is that is sometimes a trick that works well like dark lyrics with sort of a happy tune. Yeah. And and it becomes you know it's it's an interesting combination like, and there is a dissonance that's appealing when
2: Like like if he had gone full board crazy like circus tent with the music.
0: Exactly. Like embrace the darkness of yeah. the subject and just went hard. It made it, it a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. That because this is this is something like this is something that he wants to express. And maybe, you know, this is him channeling mm-hmm. his frustration and anxiety into a fantasy song. And it's like he was, he only went halfway. But like you said, like when we switch out the and, and have the bass line from come together and it becomes a darker song that all of a sudden it's cool. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, we're going to go there. We're going to, you know, we're going to go full blown into this fantasy of this murder. Then it's cool. And they, that's probably what needed to be done. But
2: yeah but for some reason he didn't he kept it to this bouncy tune
0: even though it was a fantasy I wonder if it sort of scared him as well that sort of dark we don't talk about this a lot but this sort of darker side of his personality
2: yeah it's it's funny because I think the the sort of overall impression of him is that like He's very upbeat, positive, optimistic, like he always has a good attitude, which I think in in general is true. Yes. Yes. But I think there, there's a presumption that like he has no dark side. Right, right, right. It, it's like every Beatles book is like, oh, without John Lennon, he was just a super softy soft and it's right. not true. He
0: was the romantic side, the softer side. Exactly. There's a lot of evidence that he was kind of the steel underneath it. And that's a different issue. You know, the fact that he's tough is one issue. There is this other side to him that isn't just angelic and sweet and supportive. And, you know, he talks about it throughout the years. He talks about the fact that there's sort of two sides to him. And to me, the one side of him seems to be occasionally unknown to him, or he doesn't necessarily like or understand some of his actions sometimes, you know?
2: Right. Like I'm not saying that I think there's a mean side to him because I don't I don't really think it's it's meanness, but I think there could definitely he you know he he has a temper.
0: Yeah, and I think the moodiness is, is you know really what we're talking about. I think he think he has the ability to fall into a darker place. He likes to express, especially through music, the more hopeful side. You know, he always likes to end on a smile, but. I do think that these are the emotions that he goes through and he chooses what to show to us. And this is an interesting example of some of the darkness seeping through, you know, that this, again, this is fantasy. And if it wasn't yeah. a little scary to him, I think maybe he would have just gotten full blown into it.
2: Well, you know, there's this that quote about when his mom died, he said, like, there was none of this, like, sitting around crying. Right. Right-o.
0: He was taught that his negative emotions, his sadness and anger were a burden to other people. So it should be kept to himself and not expressed. And that seems to have had a lifelong impact on him. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. But at the same time, he is a complex, sensitive guy. So these emotions are still there. But if they yes. are repressed, they may manifest in Moodiness or passive aggressiveness.
2: Yeah. And I'm sure that he can be a spoiled, self centered asshole. I don't doubt that. For
0: sure. I mean, he's a rock star and he's powerful and he's used to getting what he wants. So, of course, there's going to be this more dickish dark side of him. (laughs) Right. But that's not to say that he's mean or underhanded or anything because that's not how he's described. But I do think he's got a little of his own crazy going on.
2: I definitely think he has his own crazy. Yeah. Woman. I definitely think he's crazy. Yeah. He, there's no way he could be normal.
0: No. And, you know, it's like it's we get glimpses of Paul's darker side. And by darker, I mean, you know, not happy and optimistic all the time. The, the, the side of Paul that's in pain, because that's what this is, right? So he, he's kind of um, uh, avoiding or running away from maybe some of these feelings that- Darker makes, feelings. Yeah, these darker feelings. And, and in some ways that might make them worse and scarier than actually just sitting with them, you know? Right. Even like this song, like he's not going to go full blown into, and just say, you know what, this, is, this isn't this is a big deal. It's just a fantasy. It's kind of like, scripts, plays around with it.
2: You know, it being <laughs> a third person with fictional names and stuff like that is like one layer of- distance between him and then this fantasy and these emotions but it's like he has to put another layer of distance with the (laughs) melody as well
0: right he's going to change the melody to the story that is disconnected from him I and, and I agree that that's his way of communicating his feelings while putting some kind of barrier so he's not as vulnerable and personally I always find those barrier very transparent like if he's talking about Eleanor Rigby and her loneliness I still get yeah the emotion of loneliness and the fact that he connects to Mm -hmm. this
2: I mean the thing is is like if you're not being violent then you're repressing violent desires well that
0: that's what I was trying to say is in repressing it or not allowing it to just exist I wonder if it almost becomes a scarier thing in his mind
2: and that, it, similar to similar to like the grief that he experienced as exactly. a child that he wasn't allowed to, that he wasn't right. allowed to express.
0: He wasn't allowed to express when he was, yeah, when he was 14, even though he's very sensitive. I think he maybe sometimes doesn't want to connect deep, deeply with his feelings, but they seep out. And this, well, this song may be an example of that, you know.
2: He definitely also has trouble expressing anger toward John.
0: I think there's a lot of underlying anger in Paul. This song is probably a good manifestation of some of that seeping through. And it may be during this time seeping through in his behavior in different ways, you know, in that I don't think, you know, we're being very, very complimentary of him for being extremely professional and getting this album out. And he deserves right, that. Right, 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 But on the other hand.
2: <laughs> doesn't I, mean he couldn't have been an asshole.
0: Yeah. That that doesn't mean that during this period, I think he was an angel, you know, that, that he wasn't behaving occasionally in ways that were kind of like dickish, you know? Yeah. And that some of John's reactions are probably founded on something on, on, you know, Paul being really nice one day and then being kind of a dick the next day. And, you know, Paul acting emotionally (laughs) as well.
2: Right. Well, well, it is, I mean, it's good to remember that there's two of them in this dance. It's not. You know, it's not just John being crazy and Paul going, "Okay, well, I'm going to be rational. Exactly. Exactly. And it's also just in the same way that it's not Paul just going, oh, John, could you please sing with us? I love you so much and I love the Beatles and I don't want us to break up. Right. And John just going I only care about Yoko. <laughs> exactly. You know? Exactly.
0: I mean I know that everyone wants to tell that story and that makes it simpler for everyone but if that's the case there's no tension. <laughs> like there's no problem in that situation. <laughs> right. You know then it's just like John's just walking away which really wasn't the case. Tried to right.
2: So, uh, so, so I'm sure if, if John John, you know, if John comes and in, like, into the studio and is acting some way, it's not like Paul's not going to react to him. Paul's mm-hmm. going to push back. Right. You know? Even if even if both of them are pushing each other passive aggressively. You know?
0: Right. You don't think Paul's angry when John doesn't show up on the first day, then isn't an accident, but then comes back and then just lies there. You know, to your point, it is he's definitely like, fuck you. I'm not asking you like, what the fuck I, am my I, this, this is my job alone. But I think a lot of those things go unsaid and then they just yeah. come out in weird ways.
2: So why didn't the guys pitch in with the song?
0: I don't know whether they felt like they couldn't offer suggestions or they didn't want to, or if it was laziness right. or what it was.
2: I agree. It's hard for, It's hard to judge from the outside because we don't know how receptive Paul was at that yes, time
0: exactly. to input. And that could have been, you know, by all accounts, that may have been the issue right but but to this day like when he did that reading at the 92nd street why it just had a natural cool rhythm and that's probably what he was trying to communicate
2: so at the at the same time john is really hanging on to uh what's the new oh mary my god jane. yeah so hard and it's like john nobody likes that it's not good it's not gonna be a single <laughs> no one's gonna buy it like let it go bro but like if he had taken some mary jane energy yep into Maxwell, yeah. like if the two of them weren't such assholes at this point, yeah, and yeah, like they yeah. could have worked together, yes. they they could have come out with one great song.
0: I mean, it is interesting to note that Paul gets his way and John is unable to get them to rally around his song. Just speaking to well, the power dynamics of the time,
2: and that's a pattern throughout the whole year.
0: Yeah, yeah. Don't ever leave me alone.
3: man
2: I hate that there's a ton of baggage with this song too me too because this is like a it's just like a simple rockin
0: 50s yeah rock and roller yeah
2: and it should be just a a good enjoyable sort of like bluesy rock song
0: yeah it's like a a 50s pastiche like that's domino-ish you know do up I love it and the thing is is that without reading all the baggage I just loved this song growing up it was sexy. And yeah. you know, fun, and I loved it. His so much passion in his voice,
2: if <laughs> he does something with his he puts like a little whimper in his voice. Uh never make it alone.
0: He's got all this depth, and you know, love, and passion, and need yeah. for this person
2: because it. It's a pleading for someone to stay. Yeah. Um, people assume I think that that's about the loss of John or the Beatles because that's what's breaking up at the time. Yes. Um, but I don't really, I I don't really read it like that. I I read it more like, "Baby, don't leave me. I really need you right now." <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do too. You know, there could be a dual meaning to this song that he's sort of channeling his desperation that he. Doesn't want to lose the Beatles. He doesn't want to lose the partnership with John. He's trying to communicate that, you know, that this is, he loves, loves them. But I do also think Paula has just gotten together with Linda. They're just this newly formed couple. And there's, I'm sure, a level of passion between them. Like, he's really going on a limb for her, too. He's got her family there. You know, he's really, really counting on her. And this is early days of their relationship. I mean, he says that they were quite volatile. Like, that's the word that he uses about them when they get married, is they were volatile. And
2: so... I think he used that into, like, the 80s. (laughs) He does.
0: He he does say that they're still volatile. And I think because we don't see that, that we think that, oh, they stay together. There's no problems between them. But he oh, says, people
2: think think they're, like, the softest. Like, there's no tension. You know, there's
0: no tension. Like, you know, she's never going to leave him.
2: Yeah, like, well, I think because people think of her as, like, a hippie mom, like, an earth mama or yeah, something. Yeah, 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 So they just think that she's just cooking for him every night. <laughs> it's like, all she does is, like, <laughs> feed him, you know? <laughs> And, like, soothe him or something. Oh, totally. Meanwhile, it's like they're throwing dishes across the, you know. Absolutely. You know, and specifically. And we know that they had that big fight the night before they got married. Right. That's what, whenever I hear that song, that's what I think. Like, I'm sure it wasn't specifically about that, but. That's what it evokes for me when he when he says, when you told me you didn't need me anymore.
0: Right. I mean, it, that's kind of terrifying that there was a woman who was willing to just up and leave him.
2: And again, she's pre- she's pregnant and her dad is a lawyer. Right. It's not like she couldn't walk if he, he didn't pull his shit together. You know what I mean? Yeah. She
0: had money. <laughs> she's independent. She was like, hey, I was already divorced. I can go on my own. And so, and he calls them exactly. specific, specifically volatile. So I do think... There's a certain level of desperation there that, you know, that he's yes. like, Please baby, don't leave me. I need you. You know, I'm into you
2: and Yeah, like he's in his own crazy, uh, you know, passionate, volatile relationship. Oh, with no. his wife.
0: Exactly. With his wife, right. <laughs> right. And I think that maybe that's exacerbated by the drama that's going on with John and the Beatles too. So it could have a double. I definitely
2: meeting. agree. Definitely agree. Well, um, Emmerich was the one who told the stories of like how Paul would come in um, early. Of course, he did. Mm-hmm. Um, Such he a He would come in early and work on and work on his oh darling vocal alone before the other guys showed up, and that he did that for a long time. Which to me says a couple of things. One is that he doesn't necessarily feel comfortable and safe with them anymore. Another thing is he, he might be sensitive to wasting their time or spending too much, you know, if they, if he's getting the vibe that they think he's spending too much time on, on On whatever songs.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'll take care of the part that doesn't involve you on my own time. I'll, I'll come up early and do that. And then also I think because, you know, again, as, as we discussed in the, um, in episode two we discussed the early version of Oh Darling, which was a mellow, like chill. Oh yeah. Duet.
0: Exactly. Yeah,
2: Yeah, exactly. They're just like back and forth. And it was just like this kind of sweet jam turns into this like gut wrenching, like soul bearing, you know, like, I definitely think he is like pouring a lot of emotion into that vocal, like a lot of angst, anxiety, anger, you know, terror, all those things. Yeah. desperate. Pouring it into the vocal. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's as good as anything on plastic on a band. I mean, I think it's an amazing performance. It it is. And I think John criticizing it is sheer jealousy and pettiness.
0: Why would you detract from one of Paul's like most, you know, authentic, gut wrenching, amazing performances? Because John said so. It's just like the power of introducing an idea in people's minds is incredible.
2: I know it's terrible. Can you imagine if, 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 if Paul had been like, yeah, imagine it was an okay tune, but I would have, he should have let me write that melody because that's my forte. Right. And Can then... you imagine people would be like, fuck you, Paul. How dare you say that?
0: Yeah, I know it's true.
2: So in, in regards to Paul doing the vocal by himself, in addition to there being some pettiness and some jealousy, I think there's also resentment on on John's part from the sort of emotional shit show that John and Paul are going through at this time. And like, for example, Paul doing the Oh Darling vocal by himself. Right, and just bypassing the other guys, I think that's a sore spot for John.
0: Right. I mean, they do do backup, but but not in the way that it was originally conceived. You know, it was almost a call and response originally. Um, Mm -hmm. It's interesting because Paul complains about Come Together. This is so typical of them, that Paul complains that he didn't have the opportunity to do the harmonizing that he wanted on Come Together, whereas John, who's probably feeling like he would have liked to have contributed mm-hmm. more to this song, instead of saying I felt insecure, yes. John yes. Out and Out criticizes this song. It's just very much their approach to mm-hmm. when John feels hurt, he lashes out.
2: And instead of saying like that he was hurt about Paul doing his uh Oh darling vocal solo, he just cut to the chase and insulted him.
0: Right. Right. Well, I, and I also think that you're right, that when they talk about these songs, sometimes they talk about them with the baggage that he felt at the time. I'm really glad that Paul sung it because I love his take. And yeah. I think that for me, the the most interesting part about John's criticism or his remark about this song is the fact that he should have done it. Like the fact that, and we, we talked about this in a previous episode. But the fact that he wanted to sing it is really right. interesting. And to me, it suggests that either he wants to sing it because he really likes the song or mm-hmm. else the song expressed something
3: that like he it wanted meant something to say. To yeah. Like it meant
0: something that he wanted to express. John hasn't sung a Paul song. Since like 1964, you know, like um, the the eight days a week or something like that. Like, (laughs) this is not this would have been a total anomaly if Paul would have thrown in this song by this point. You know, so just the fact that he thinks that that would have been an option is interesting to me because he's still thinking like as much as Lennon McCartney is in chaos at this point, it's still an option in his mind. For all the, you know, they were they were moving apart musically and creatively at that time. He loved "Oh Darling." He wants to be singing it. It goes beyond the surface reading of he just thought he could perform it better. I think it really, really is more of an emotional issue that he's got a connection with the song.
2: Yes, for sure. You know, the the, the clever thing that John did though is now he's made that song all about him. Now, like nowadays, on a on a whatever in Beatles, oh yeah, Beatles fandom or whatever. It's like. Yep. All the conversation around Oh Darling involves John, and that's ridiculous. It's Paul's song. It's an amazing vocal – like none of the conversation is about Paul's amazing vocal performance on the song. And Ringo's drumming, by the way. This is one of Ringo's favorite Beatle tracks. Nobody talks about Paul and Ringo. All the conversation is now centered around John because Drama Queen had to say some shit in 1980 that made it this song all about him. So now the conversation is all about him. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a nice little trick.
0: The next song is Octopus's Garden. <laughs> Yet again, this is another one that they started when John was away. They picked it up again, so they worked on it without John, and then they picked up on it again when John was there, but he, again, did not participate. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it adds an element of lightness and joy to the album. Mm-hmm. I enjoy, I actually really enjoy it. I like the production. You know, it's mostly production, but it's fun. It's like them having fun. Yeah
2: and again it's sort of uh, um, it adds to the landscape of beetle weirdness in the beetleverse you know
0: it does like the fantasy yes. around the beetles yes. like they, all of a sudden they're in an octopus's garden and there's lots of unlike let it be which was very much like rooted and grounded in the normal and the everyday you know all of a sudden we're back in fantasy land here with Mr. Mean Mr. Mustard <laughs> you know and Sun
2: King, um, Polythene Pam Exactly, girls coming
0: through the window. Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, it's like we're in the crazy Beatles world again, which is kind of glamorous and Mm -hmm. colorful and fun. Absolutely, absolutely. And
2: this is what takes them from being just a regular old band to
0: yeah, yeah, to being this magical world of wizards (laughs) wizards and yeah. yeah. So, thank you, Ringo, for that. Okay, so another one that they worked on. With um, the three of them, was "Here Comes the Sun." It's a great favorite among people, and mm-hmm. and I mean, it's lovely. It sounds beautiful. It's sweet. It's like a palate cleanser, really. Yes. You know, it's like you know, after the great downer of "I Want You," she's so heavy that all of a sudden it's like the sun clears, and it's beautiful again.
2: Which isn't typically it, George's role, by the way. No, in the Beatles. It's, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's true.
0: It's true. Like. Don't bother me. <laughs> yeah. You know he's, right. but here he is. You know the sunshine, he's which the is the optimist. Lovely. Here. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's really the three guys that that do this largely, and it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it doesn't r- really tell us much about the situation, except for the fact that I think that it does reflect the fact that this year was such a combination of fights and egos getting hurt, and these periods of. Insecurity and and, but then there was also these beautiful periods where they're getting along, lots of laughter, Mm -hmm. you know, periods of great harmony. So I think that this album is reflective in that way in terms of being dark and then being very sunny and warm. And, you know, it's interesting.
2: And this also, by the way, is um, yet another song that the three laid the foundation for uh, before John arrived and finished while John remained in bed.
0: You know, John told us a story about this one, about how Yoko was playing uh, Moonlight Sonata, and this is always repeated, Yes, playing Moonlight Sonata, and he said to her, play it backwards. And she immediately played it backwards, because that's super easy to do.
2: And, um, and that is a, then, that is an awesome story, and it, it is so bullshit.
0: <laughs> it's so bullshit. As somebody who's a pianist, I can tell you that is not easy to do, and nor do the songs actually have that much to do with each other, except for maybe in terms of pacing. You know, like, that's the one thing that I think is, is similar. But I've heard Moonlight Sonata play backwards. <laughs> and, it, and It's not and because. It does, <laughs> no, it's not because. But I think that this, this is how clever John is, is... In that statement, what he did was he connected him and the writing of that song to Yoko and to Beethoven. So all three of them are connected in that statement. And, you know, it's not true. Yoko playing a song that inspires him to write a different, unconnected song does not make her a co-writer, nor does it make Beethoven a (laughs) co-writer. Nor Nor does it it make make John Beethoven. Exactly. Exactly. It's really interesting how the power of words and spin. And I think this is the perfect case scenario, because even like in Gould's book, he talks about how this was Yoko's kiss off to her, her in-laws, which she called the Beatles. And it's like, wait a minute, she didn't even write this song. Like, what are you talking like, <laughs> about? You just now given the writing of this song. To- like, it's
2: crazy. It's like, Maybe I'm Amazed is Lynn McCartney's daggered message to John Lennon.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Except she didn't write it, and it wasn't to John. But yeah, okay. It's just like the power of stuff that John says. Anyways, um, all of this is not to say that John isn't as good as Beethoven, because as much as I love Beethoven, and I do... I love John Moore. I just don't think the songs are the same. And more to the point, I don't think Yoko playing the song makes her or Beethoven co-writers, but it does make a wonderful story. I love the production of this song.
2: Oh, it's so good.
0: You know, the production of this song is amazing. And the harmony of this song is beautiful. Kind of like interlude. Like if this was a film... That this is amazing and so evocative. Yeah. But to me, there is something that is emotionally disconnected about this song. And that's not like a criticism or anything. That's just my personal observation.
2: Yeah. I do like that um, when Paul was asked about the lyrics of Because, he defended them.
0: He does. It's interesting because John's lyrics are actually like, they would ne- this would never happen now, but contemporaneously, the interviewer thought they were a little bit
2: regressive. Tired, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's like, it turns me on. Isn't that a little played out, Paul?
3: Why did you use the lyric turn me on and blow my mind in that particular song? I, I rather felt that sounded a bit passe in 1969 because it's been used so much in the past?
1: Yes, well, they were John's lyrics. (laughs) But I think, you know, if they'd have been straight, yeah, so I'm not taking any blame, but no, Uh, if they'd have been used just straight, if it had been you turn me on, you blow my mind, okay, that would have been passe. But to say that because the world is round, it turns me on, it's great.
3: Yes, it's I like see.
1: well, it's not mm. fantastic, but it's no, as, it's as good as that, good enough for me, you know. Yeah, and it, because the wind is high, it blows my mind. Yeah, you know, it's much better than be, you blow my mind, baby, honey bunch.
2: I like it a lot. I, I just love the sound of it. Um, when the guitar part comes in, it's it's very cool. It, it like cuts through the soundscape.
0: I mean, that's what to me this song is: is a soundscape. Yeah. and I love it for that. I do too. yeah and, and this is an example of them harmonizing perfectly beautifully. To me I think this is an interesting example of John at this time not really being able to say something definitive mm. like it's sort of a an unfinished statement. it's because right and you know that's what makes the song interesting it's sort of circular and doesn't go anywhere. But that's kind of how I see his mindset at this time, too, is a little bit in limbo, a little undecided, a little unable to make a statement. Like, you know, Paul is saying the end, you know, or, you know, he's he's making some pretty definitive statements in this. And John
2: is just offering this dangling participle.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I, I, I think that might reflect potentially it might reflect his mindset of being very undecided and yeah unsure of where what he wants and where he is and what he's going to do you know
3: end of part one